Well, good morning, church. I hope you are all well this morning. It's uh, so good to be here. I'm always uh, a little, uh, have a little anticipation. Uh, heck, let's just put it straight away. I'm scared to death. <laughs> you know, I have, uh, I have given briefings to the Speaker of the House representatives, four-star generals. I've been to Afghanistan. I've been shot at. Nothing gives me more fear and trepidation than to rightly apply the word of God. Because, uh, let's put it this way, he outranks them all. Outranks all of us. So, But it is an honor to share the word of God with you this morning, to worship with you in that study. Um, this was a great um, time spent this last several weeks preparing for this message. Uh, this is a wonderful narrative from the book of John, chapter 3, book of John, uh, about a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And I think most of you have probably heard this story before. Uh, I know I have many times. But in diving deep and studying about this, I learned some new things. And, yeah, that's always, that's always a wonderful thing with the Word of God. You always come and learn some new things when you open your heart and your mind uh, to the Word. So we are going to be in Chapter 3 uh, of John. If you have a Bible, please open to Chapter 3, Verse 1. But we're not... Uh, uh, hard copy snobs here at First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. So if you've got a Bible app, turn to that. Or you can just follow along on the slides. Uh, so we, we try to cover all bases, make it easy for everybody. So if you would, if you're able, please stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1 of John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lord, God, thank you so much for your word and the reading of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence among us this morning. Open our minds and our hearts to what you would have us learn today, Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Okay, please be seated, buckle in, okay, face mask fitted, go to full O2, 
because this is going to be quite the ride. Do you think Top Gun is cool? No, man. This, this is where it's at. Okay. So a little bit of background on John. As uh, Mike always likes to put it in context first, that's very important. Remember, John is writing much later than the other uh, apostles who wrote the other three, what they call synoptic gospels. And John's focus is different. John's gospel is unique. It is, is, has a lot of material that is not included in any of, the, any of the other synoptic gospels. In fact, there are scholars who say that it is 95% unique. Okay, The story, the narrative regarding Nicodemus is one of those unique stories. Now, while Matthew focuses on Jesus as the Messiah, and, and his focus audience is the Jews, okay? Well, Mark's focus audience was the persecuted church in Rome, and he is teaching on Jesus as the suffering servant. And Luke, the great physician, is writing to Greeks and focusing on Jesus as the son of man. John takes it up a notch and is very clear about his teaching about who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of of God. He stresses his deity. Every narrative, every encounter, every word that is in the book of John is focused on that. The Holy Spirit led John to remember things, recall things, and, and, and events come to his mind to drive home that message. And Nicodemus is, the story of Nicodemus is just one thing. Also in the book of John, as you read John, every narrative, every story is put in an order for a purpose. They're not, it's not willy-nilly. So the story of Cana, okay, the, of um, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding banquet in Cana, is followed by Jesus cleansing the temple. Those two things have a purpose. to show Jesus' deity, his control over creation, and as, because he clearly says, this is my father's temple. He clearly articulates that he is the son of God. Now we come to the story of Nicodemus, Okay. Very important story. And, Jesus, and Nicodemus is about to be floored. Now this, um, remember that the Jews had questioned Jesus about his actions at the temple and had asked uh, him for a sign of his authority for what he did when he cleaned the temple. They didn't really need any further signs because that sign was a sign itself out of Malachi 3. And, but they wanted more. That's so true in the world today, isn't it? Everybody wants more and more evidence that Jesus is who he said he is. You've got enough, folks. Now the point is, make the decision. You know, there is plenty of evidence. Any lawyer could take Jesus' case to trial and win because the, the evidence is so great about who he is. Now, in John chapter 2, verse 23, it says that during the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which immediately follows Passover, which immediately follows the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was doing signs which caused many to believe in him. And it is at this point that we pick up the story in John 3.1. Okay? Now, this event with Nicodemus is reduced by John to a short discourse that you can read, if you're Kyle, in three minutes. If you're me, me, it takes about five and a half, unless the dog's in the house, and then it's 20. It is a short discourse. But this is an event... This discussion was an all-night discussion. There has never been a college 
seminar or a college all-night bull session that goes as long and as deep as this discussion. This is an all-night discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. Now, there are a lot of theologians that have different opinions about what happens during this, this discussion and about Nicodemus's spiritual state. But John uses this, the fact that Nicodemus comes at night to illustrate that Nicodemus is in a uh, state of spiritual darkness. Okay? Nicodemus is also a representative man. He represents not only the Pharisees, who Jesus says are in spiritual darkness, but the entire nation of Israel, which is in spiritual darkness, and all of mankind, which is in spiritual darkness. So Nicodemus, in the spate of spiritual darkness, is coming at night to have an encounter with the light of the world, and he is about to be lit up. He's about to have his entire sense of self turned upside down by this encounter. And you know what? Anytime we encounter Jesus Christ, that should be the same effect that we have. Our lives should be turned upside down, and we should not be the same thereafter. If you're, li if you're living your life the same way you did last week, a month ago, when you were first saved, you got to check six and get back on the right path because you're not progressing in your faith. In fact, you need to make sure that you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ because you should be living differently. Theologian Gary Berger, who writes a really good commentary on the book of John, says of Nicodemus, by the end of the night-long discussion with Jesus, Nicodemus is baffled. He is disturbed. His commitment to the Torah and obedience to prayer and sacrifice and his understanding of election, responsibility, and privilege will all have been challenged. Not only challenged, but turned upside down. So there are three important aspects that I want to kind of focus on this morning in the brief time that we have. And believe me, this study of John, I, I spent probably mm, three, four weeks diving into just this one passage of Scripture and then following it out where it goes. Um, I learned a lot, and it is a moving, moving study. Nicodemus is an interesting man, but Nicodemus isn't really the subject of the story. It's Jesus Christ who is the object and the subject of the story. Okay, first we see Nicodemus the seeker. In John 3 verses 1 and 2, we see that uh, it says that now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He is a Pharisee. And, G and Nicodemus, if you remember the Pharisees, this is a group, a very elite group of individuals, never uh, 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 comprising more than five or 6,000 men. Moreover, not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, he is a leading teacher in Israel at the time, probably right there with Gamaliel. Maybe, you know, he is a very important guy. Moreover, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is 70 people drawn from the Sadducees and Pharisees and others that are rule over all of Israel. 70 plus one, the high priest is the, the uh, tie caster, kind of like Kamala Harris, but with a turban, uh, that, can, can, that can make the deciding vote in the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus is a really important guy. 
And as I said, he is representative, though, of all mankind in his spiritual darkness. Now, Nicodemus sought out Jesus at night because, well, scholars disagree. I think the simplest solution, the most obvious reason that he sought out Jesus at night is that he wanted to have a private conversation with him, a private, uninterrupted conversation with this very interesting, very dynamic, very radical teacher from Galilee. And Nicodemus is a big shot, and he doesn't want to be interrupted in his conversation with Jesus. He wanted to have that quiet conversation. He also doesn't want the prying eyes of his fellow Pharisees. Okay? Now, developing among the Jewish religious leaders at the time was some apprehension about Jesus. Not all of them, though, were necessarily immediately opposed to him. Cleansing, the cleansing of the temple was clearly a challenge to the authority of Annas the high priest. And it hit Annas the high priest and the other priests in the pocketbook, okay, because of what Jesus did in cleansing the temple court of the money changers. Now, Nicodemus, this is interesting. This, this is something I learned. Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, truly would not have been unduly perturbed by Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And here's why. The Pharisees had no control over the temple. That was all the domain of the Sadducees. And who are the Sadducees? They're arch rivals. So in fact, as Leon Morris says, Nicodemus may possibly have approved of the cleansing of the temple, partly on general principle that anything that put the Sadducees down a notch or two was a good thing. And also because in general, for general religious principles. Because remember, the Pharisees are really focused on procedure, ceremonial cleanliness, obedience to the letter of the word. And they would have had problems with the way the temple mount was being treated by money changers. They, they would have had a legitimate complaint with that. Regardless of why Nicodemus came at night, he was coming to Jesus with a very important question. What's interesting about Nicodemus, though, he doesn't really know what the important question is. And Jesus is about to tell him what the important question is and what the answer is. Now, Jesus addresses Jesus, uh, Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi, which we all know means teacher. It's a term of great respect. So you have this Pharisee of Pharisees, member of the Sanhedrin, that's really big shot, addressing Jesus in a very humble manner. There are theologians who think that, Jesus, that Nicodemus is coming here with a bit of an attitude to kind of pin Jesus down on some things and hold him up to ridicule. I don't think that's true at all. Because if he was, as a Pharisee, if he wanted to do that, he would do that in public. He would take Jesus down a notch or two in public. No, he's coming at night. He truly is seeking wisdom, trying to, trying to seek understanding, trying to seek uh, an answer to who Jesus really is. So... Nicodemus is a seeker. He, like me, like I once was, and like I still am. I'm a seeker after the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus, and Nicodemus uses the phrase, we know, in addressing Jesus. Okay, now is, this could be the, what they call the magisterial we being used, you know, as a form of personal address. I don't think so. I think Nicodemus is actually representing some other Pharisees, other influential people that have a legitimate question of Jesus. They're seeking him out. Joseph of Arimathea may have been one of Nicodemus' associates that had questions about who Jesus is. 
It's not clear from the text, but it seems that he was not the only person within his circle that had some questions. Okay? The next point I would like to make is Jesus confronts Nicodemus with a stunning truth. In verses 3 through 8, Jesus really gets to the task. Nicodemus does not even ask a question before Jesus addresses the real heart of the issue, what Jesus knows to be the most important question for which Nicodemus needs an answer. And that is, how can a man enter into the kingdom of God? Now, when Jesus uses the truly, truly, that's the same as saying amen and amen. That is a statement that what you are about to hear is the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help my father. Okay? Jesus is bringing him the truth. And he's telling Nicodemus, you better listen. And I, you got it on good authority because I'm bringing it to you. That statement, amen, is it is and it shall be so. That's the literal translation of, of the term amen. This double amen is a strong affirmation guaranteeing the truth of what he says and underscoring his authority. Now, Nicodemus is blown away by this. He's taken aback, aback by the statement. He is completely off his game plan at this point, thrown off his original line of inquiry and stands confused at Jesus' statement. What does Jesus mean by this, being born again? By the standard of Judaism at the time, he got to understand Nicodemus believed he was in a good position to enter the kingdom of God. He was a religious leader. He was a teacher of the law. He did everything he could possibly do to remain ceremonially clean and in obedience to the Mosaic law. But here's Jesus telling him that unless something radical happens to you, you will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus's whole world has just been turned upside down. What, what, what are you talking about? I thought I was in. And Jesus said, nope, not in, not in at all. The adjective born here in the Greek means literally to beget. That's where we get to be born again. But Jesus does something interesting here that John captures. He captures the dual meaning of another Greek word, the word for again, which is anothen. It can mean either born again, a time reference, or it can be a geographical reference, being born from above. Nicodemus takes the Greek word, Jesus telling him that you're going to be born again. Jesus is telling him you're going to be born from above. You've got to be born by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, Leon Morris goes, both senses are correct. They're both true. And in the manner of John, he probably intends that we understand both. In fact, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again from above. Wow. Now, though confused, Nicodemus understands what Jesus just said to him is radical. Jesus did not say you must become like a baby. Nope, doesn't do that. It's just the opposite. Jesus is telling Nicodemus it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you, for you to have mature understanding of what I'm telling you. And by the way, you should, Nicodemus. You're the teacher of the law. You're a major teacher. Nicodemus would have understood if Jesus had spoken of entering the kingdom first and then becoming like a newborn. That was an accepted Judaic teaching. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying the complete reverse. 
It is such a radical statement, such a radical idea that Nicodemus responds with two related questions expressing what he sees as an impossibility. Still not grasping that, that what Jesus is saying, he must be born again from above. Nicodemus asks, how could it be feasible that an old man could reenter his mother's womb? Jesus doesn't give up on Nicodemus. He keeps teaching. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus, for never giving up on us and to continuing to teach us, to lead us, to bless us through the Holy Spirit and to guide us in the way that we should go. Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you. Once again, he's foot stomping. When I'm telling you this, this is important. Listen. Theologians, commentators, and other writers oppose several ideas to, in, an ex, in an attempt to explain what Jesus meant by being born of water, and all of them have some plausibility. If we had about six and a half hours, we could go into these discussions. They're all fascinating um, and, and illuminating, but I think they all missed the mark. The key, the hint to what Jesus is saying is right here in what he says to Nicodemus. The fact that Jesus criticizes Nicodemus for not understanding these things is an indication that what Jesus taught about the source of regeneration was clear in the Old Testament and that Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, should have known the reference and understood Jesus' teaching. Nick, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, it's already been written down for you in the Old Testament. It's all there. How have you missed this? Let me help you out, Nicodemus. I'm going to take you by your hand, walk step by step, and show you what I'm talking about. You got the rabbi of Israel, the teacher, being taught by the rabbi of heaven. Wow. Nicodemus will never be the same. In fact, we know that in the Old Testament, water is used metaphorically in order to symbolize spiritual cleansing and renewal. For instance, in, the Psalm, in Psalm 51, the psalmist writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart. Cleansing, renewal. And Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. The prophet Zechariah writes, on that day, that is the day of the Lord, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. God promised that he would pour out his spirit on the people like water. Isaiah wrote, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And then there's Joel. Joel saying, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. It's all in the Old Testament. Jesus is asking Nicodemus, how have you missed this, teacher? The result of that outpouring would be a new heart for those who come uh, with whom the Spirit comes. Again, in Jeremiah, he writes, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you. Thus, the revelation that God would bring cleansing and renewal like water by means of or affected by the Holy Spirit was clear in the Old Testament. 
And Nicodemus should have known it, and Jesus brings him to task for not knowing. In fact, he kind of ridicules him a little bit. How is it that you not know this, you teacher? It's right there. But Nicodemus doesn't, doesn't quite get it. He's, he's, he's bewildered. His, his world's been up, turned upside down. Jesus realizes that, and Jesus doesn't stop teaching. He keeps teaching Nicodemus in love. In verse 8, Jesus further explains the nature of the Spirit's work. The word of the Spirit in Greek is pneuma. You've all heard that before. It means wind. It can also means breath. It means spirit. John used that, those, those different meanings of the word. It's also the same word for wind. Jesus uses the commonality of the two meanings to show that Nicodemus, the nature of the Spirit. What he's telling him here in this verse of Scripture is, your salvation is not a work that you do. You have no control over it. Just like you, man, have no control over the wind. It comes and goes in the, in the way that it pleases, and you are only known by it because of the, way, the effect that it has. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. God, your salvation only comes through an act and work of God and God alone. You've got nothing to do with it, Nicodemus. That is the, fact, the point of fact that just rocks Nicodemus's world. It shatters his deeply held religious convictions. Nicodemus was brought up in a system that believed that a person could and should save himself by obedience to the Mosaic law and all the traditions of the elders. Entrance into the kingdom of God is through spiritual rebirth, though, being empowered by the very spirit of God. And you know what? This is a lesson for us in the church, too, because I see it happen. You get to the idea that I got to teach a Sunday school class, or I got to do this ministry, or that ministry, blah, 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 blah. No, no, that doesn't get you anywhere. You do it out of love. You do it because it's something that God's called you to do. But if you think that's going to earn you special favor with our Lord to get you into heaven, no, that's a work. And works account for nothing. It's all the work of the Holy of God and the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on that cross that you're saved. Nothing you do has any effect on that. Other than to say, I believe, Lord, forgive my unbelief. Okay? Man cannot see the kingdom of God by his own efforts in any way, shape, or form. As Jesus told Nicodemus, there must be a moving of the Spirit so that you are born of the Spirit, and man's control over and influence of the Spirit is the same as his control and influence over the wind. Nicodemus is shocked. He was likely devastated and more demoralized. At this point, he's, he realized he's hopeless. He's hopelessly lost. Off his, off his works, all his sacrifices, off his attendance to the jot and tittle of the Mosaic law, it all means nothing. Nothing in his obedience to the Torah, his ritual sacrifices, none of it suffices. He's without hope. And here is the final point, the final teaching of Jesus. Jesus brings it home right here. Jesus is the only way. In verses 9 through 15, Jesus brings it home. In verse 9, he says, this true seeker of God is still desperate for understanding and hope. He asks, how can these things be? And the Lord does not give up on him. He continues to teach this man. Out of his love and his, his compassion for this man, he just keeps on bringing the truth to him. Right now, Nicodemus has finally asked the right, the fundamental question, 
and the answer to it reveals the very nature of salvation. How can a person be born of the Spirit? Again, naked, uh, Jesus here uses the we. This is kind of cool. Jesus turned, remember early on in the first verses of John chapter 3? Nicodemus says, We've come, we, we know, we know. So there we, Jesus says, huh, your we doesn't count. The we that I'm associated with, this is, this is what matters. The plural we Jesus uses is we know statement here is in contrast to Nicodemus's we know statement. Jesus describes himself as one of several authoritative figures who is speaking truth. In fact, he is intimating himself. He is saying, I am the truth. I have authority. Now, as you would might expect, and as my studies have shown, theologians have a lot of different ideas about who the we is. Well, it's not a mouse in Jesus' robe pocket. Some think that it is uh, Jesus is referring to himself and his disciples. Well, that makes no sense to me because why the disciples can't park their bicycles straight at this point. This is early in the ministry. Okay, they are still floundering around and Jesus is constantly saying, do you not understand? So it's not Jesus and, and, and the disciples, certainly not the disciples. Some say it's Jesus and John the Baptist. That is plausible. Why? Because early in John 1, uh, uh, John talks about John the Baptist. Immediately following this discourse, John talks about John the Baptist. So that, that is entirely plausible. But I think the one that really struck me is this one. There are those who see in Jesus' statement a reference to the Godhead as one who had himself descended from heaven, in verse 13, to speak of heavenly things. That is very interesting, and that one resonated with me. But regardless, whomever Jesus had in mind, he makes it very clear that he and his witnesses, in contrast to Jewish religious leaders, are not making any speculations, but making firsthand statements about what they were bearing witness to. They had seen it. They had heard it. They are the authorities. In verse 12, Jesus chides Nicodemus again, but this time the rebuke is also a warning. If Nicodemus would not believe the earthly things that he could experience for himself, either personally or through observation, how could he be able to accept the heavenly things Jesus would reveal? Again, as a teacher of the law, he should have understood that in Jeremiah 17, 9 and other passages that the human heart is desperately wicked and cannot be changed by any legalistic system, including that of the Pharisees. He should have understood from Deuteronomy 36 that any true change would require a circumcised heart that would be given by God. From Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and Ezekiel, he should have anticipated the spirit working to cleanse and restore. You see, the doctrine of regeneration that it was the earthly thing that Nicodemus should have already been uh, should have already understood. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the earthly thing, the thing that's already been given to you on earth in Scripture, and and that you have experienced for yourself. So, if you don't understand those, Nicodemus, how are you going to understand what I am about to tell you about the heavenly things? Now, Jesus could have said at that point, "We're done." You know, I've taken you as far as you can go. Go have a good night. See you later. But he doesn't. He doesn't give up on Nicodemus. He keeps teaching. He loves this man. He wants him to understand the truth. And in verses 13 through 15, he brings it to climax. Jesus points out to him that the only one that could reveal the heavenly things was the one who had been there. 
since there was no one who had ascended to heaven, not even Moses, the revelation of these things would have to be from someone that came from heaven, and that someone is the Son of Man. Again, Nicodemus should have understood that from Daniel. Should have understand that concept. Jesus is saying he is not a Son of Man, but the Son of Man, the one who is unique among all men. Jesus brings the discussion to its climatic disclusion with an illustration as to what is to come. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now Jesus is referring to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. That was our Bible reading for Friday. Kind of goes. There's a reason why we have our Bible reading structured the way they are. Gives you an insight into what Mike is going to preach the next Sunday. Just a, just a tip. Kind of cool. At the time of the deliverance from bondage, if you remember, the Israelites saw a miracle after miracle, both in the land of Egypt and in their journey in the wilderness. And yet they complained against God constantly. And God finally said, okay, I'm going to chastise you. I'm going to send some fiery serpents. And if they bite you, you will die. Now, I can picture Israelites like Micah running around the camp screaming at the very sight of the vipers. And some of them are unfortunate enough to get bit by the vipers. And it is a painful death. You bit by one of these vipers, you die. Now, when the people finally acknowledged their sin and cried out for mercy, God did not remove the snakes. Instead, he made provision for their healing that would require them to demonstrate their faith in him. That... Nicodemus reminds, or Jesus reminds Nicodemus of the story. Jesus tells Nicodemus that this was an example of the means to be born again. The basis of the new birth would be faith in the Son of Man who would be lifted up. The heavenly mystery revealed was that the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way the bronze serpent was in the wilderness. This is the first revelation Jesus gave concerning his coming to be a sacrifice for man's sin. What Jesus says here is one of the most clear statements of the nature of saving faith giving anywhere in Scripture. Now, that's been an ongoing debate for centuries among theologians. But it's got to remember this. Faith is always in an object and results in an action in keeping with the belief and trust in that object. What saves you folks is not your faith. Your faith is not saving. Your trust in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins, as your Redeemer, is what saves. Jesus is what saves you. It's him and him alone. The object of faith that saves you from from your sin is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in what you do. Such a faith will result in taking action in keeping with what is believed. In other words, if you are a professing Christian, there better be a change in your life. Okay? Now imagine that you lived among the ancient Israelites, and you were just bitten by one of these fiery serpents. You know that unless something radical happens, you're going to die. You hear about what God told Moses to do, and that bronze serpent is on the pole. It's now set up on the other side of the camp. You could doubt the report and stay where you are, in which case you're going to die. You could agree the report is probably true, but do nothing because you think it is too late for you anyway. 
you're going to die. You're going to agree the report is true and even claim in a loud voice, I believe God, so I claim my healing. This is intellectual assent with a profession of faith. Sounds pretty good. Uh-uh. You're still being disobedient. It is a disobedient faith and worthless because if you stay where you are, you will die. The only way to live is to believe the report and follow the instructions given. It is to trust God and obey his instructions, regardless of however weak and stumbling your faith might be, regardless of whatever doubts might fill you in your mind. If you go to where the serpent is set up and look upon it, you will be healed. You will live. The same is true with belief in Jesus Christ. It is not a matter of how strong and bold your faith is. Thank God. For it could be weak and doubting like the man in Mark 9:24, who who states, I believe, help my unbelief. That man's me so many times. Thank God that it's not how strong my faith is. It's the fact that I have faith in Christ and Christ's work. That's the important thing. Others may have to assist and carry you as the friends of the paralytic man in Matthew 19, or Matthew 9. Some people have to just carry you to where you need to be. Praise God for those, those people. It is an action induced by the Holy Spirit that is always accompanied by the fruit of repentance and an action of faith. It does not matter how vocal you are about your profession of faith in Jesus. If you do not get up and follow him, become his disciple, live in accordance with his teachings, and obedient to his commands, your profession of faith is a farce. And you're only fooling yourself. Now, what happens to Nicodemus? At the end of chapter 3, we don't know. We know his world's been turned upside down. He's been giving a teaching that he is struggling to understand. He walks away, I imagine, at dawn, just mystified. Have you watched The Chosen? Which is good. I like it. It, it, it is good. You know, you see that they portray Nicodemus. First off, you have John in the background taking down the notes of the, of the conversation. That's how they explain it ends up in, in, in Scripture. Have you, I think that, that's, a, that's a good uh, uh, theatrical device. Explains a lot. I think the truth is more profound than that. See, I think this entire discourse in John 3 was conveyed by Nicodemus himself to John. That's how it ends up in Scripture. This is Nicodemus's personal story of how he first was introduced to Jesus and his first steps towards faith in the Lord. Nicodemus eventually did, in my estimation, and a lot of good theologians. I don't discount those who think Nicodemus still died in his sins. There are those who think that. I am in the camp that thinks Nicodemus found salvation in the Lord. And he did believe Jesus and, and, was, and ultimately came, became bold in his faith. In fact, when you get to the end of John, Nicodemus, along with Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, goes and retrieves Jesus' body after his crucifixion. When none of the other apostles are, can be found anywhere, they go and claim the body from Pilate. That's a bold move. And oh, by the way, in today's dollars, that 75 pounds of herbs and spices that Nicodemus bought 
to anoint Jesus' body is the price of gasoline. It actually comes to about $200,000. That is an extravagant sum. And what, Jesus, what Nicodemus was doing was anointing the son of God. That's a bold statement by Nicodemus. I agree with uh, John Phillips. It's that, I can't say name dropping. John Phillips who said, Nicodemus does come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus repented, believed, and was born again by the Holy Spirit, and he received eternal life. To be born again is more than a new, different, and religious course. It is a whole new life. As John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The new birth only comes by the will of God and not by inheritance, your will, or the will of other people. As Micah said before, there are no, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. The good news is that we know that God's will is that all come to him and repentance he will save. And, his, and he has sent his spirit into the world to convict, convict people concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, if you are feeling guilty for your sin, then will you turn from your sin and self-righteousness and humble yourself to go see the Son of Man lifted up, believe, and receive eternal life as Nicodemus did? Or will you stay in your tent, bitten by the fiery serpent of sin and destined to die? That's the question. Seek the Lord, for you must be born again from above. If you will join me in the closing prayer. Thank you, God, for your holy word, dear Lord. Thank you for being such a good teacher, for giving me simple illustrations of profound truths. Thank you for being so direct, for not skirting the hard questions. And thank you for answers, even though at times I am so slow to grasp them. Thank you that I can come and bring you my doubts as Thomas did, my fears as Joseph of Arimathea did, my shame as the woman at the well did, and my questions as did Nicodemus. Thank you for the time you met me at night when you told me the bad news that I stood outside the gates of your kingdom and the good news that I, all I ha would have to do to enter would be to take a step of faith out of the darkness and into your light. Help me to walk in the light as you yourself are the light. Where there is darkness, let me be a beacon of light. And if not a beacon, then, Lord, a torch. And if not a torch a candle, and if not a candle, at least a flicker, a spark to ignite others in their search for the truth and the life that is in you, Lord Jesus. Amen.